Okay, if you have a Bible, you can turn to John 6. We'll look at the end of John 6, verses 60 through 71 this morning. It's a, it's a normal experience um, for us to worry about the state of our souls. I've had a few conversations this week about that very thing. It, it's a normal experience to worry about the state of our souls, to question the genuineness of our spirituality. That's normal. So at the very least, if you take anything away from this sermon, if this describes you, you question the genuineness of your spirituality, you shouldn't hide it from each other out of fear that you're the only one who struggles with something like this, right? This is normal. Uh, sometimes this, this struggle, this, uh, this question about uh, our spirituality or the state of our souls, sometimes if it's, it's, it's driven by a strong sense of guilt. Um, we, we think that maybe we're too bad or we haven't done enough good things, enough good works maybe to, um, to be okay spiritually. Sometimes the struggle is more subtle than that because we know we're not saved by good works. We're saved by faith. But we've just got this nagging sense that maybe our faith might be lacking. Or if we had real faith, we'd be doing better than we are, so maybe we're not really believers after all. Uh, sometimes it gets really scary when you factor in sort of God's mysterious will what if I'm not one of the elect? What if God didn't choose me? What if I've deceived myself about my faith, about my spiritual status? And on the last day, God ends up saying to me, depart, I never knew you. Uh, we Calvinists are the worst about this. Um, we, we think it's something of a badge of honor to wrestle with the question of the assurance of your salvation, your, your own spirituality. If you haven't questioned your faith and wrestled with the doctrine of election, you're probably not a real Christian, right? Um, but sometimes, I mean, it's a distressing question, and sometimes the question's so distressing <clears throat> that we just stop asking it altogether. We assume, we just assume way down at some very deep level that we must not be okay spiritually. And... Um, and the thought of that is too agonizing to bear, so we just pretend everything's okay until maybe we start believing it about ourselves. Hey, everything's okay, everything's fine. Or uh, we just slowly wander away from anything spiritual, like the church. Just slowly wander away and distract ourselves until we've forgotten to ask the question. It really is best to just square up and face the question head on. Square up face the question head on, we need the assurance of our salvation. Do I have eternal life? That's the question. How can I know that I have eternal life? At its root, this thing that deeply worries us is a question, it's a relational question. It's a, it's a question about the nature of our relationship with God. That's what that is. And, uh, and so the real question is, do I have one? Do I have a relationship with God? We get, stuck, um, we get stuck in the question, I think, and just kind of spin our wheels. We get stuck in the question when we look within for the answer. When we look inside, when we look to our motives, we look at our own hearts, we look at our minds, we look at our actions. When we look here, you can't get out of that question. You can't get out. You get stuck in it. 
whatever version of the struggle that you have, uh, you're probably hung up on your guilt, your works, your faith, your part in the relationship. That's where we get hung up. Do I have a relationship with God? And we get hung up on my part in the relationship. You're going to continue to worry as long as you're looking at yourself. But there's an alternative. Jesus gives us that. Thanks, thanks be to God. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning as we read uh, the end of John chapter 6. So let me pray and we'll read the scripture. Father, we need your help. All of us here need your help. I need your help, and every single one of us needs your help, uh, whether we're asking for it or not. But we do come now in the name of Jesus and ask for the help that you have offered us in the gospel. We pray that you would fill our minds with a vision of Christ now, that you would comfort our hearts with the assurance of your love, that you would help us to see you and the relationship that we have with you in your word as we consider it this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When many of Jesus' disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we've believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. So this is all kind of follow-up after the previous conversation that, that Jesus has had in the synagogue. First, Jesus fed the multitude, um, and then he walked on the sea, and then he preached the bread of life sermon in the synagogue in Capernaum there, and now afterwards he's interacting with his disciples about all of this. It's kind of a more, more select group, narrower group, um, there usually was a larger group hanging around than just the 12, which are mentioned here, uh, the 12 disciples, the 12 original kind of core group that come to be known as the apostles. Usually a larger group hanging around Jesus than that, men and women who have shown at least, at least moderate interest in, um, in learning from Jesus. But it's not just a random public crowd at this point, right? It's not just a, a random public crowd, it's his followers or at least uh, repeat visitors exploring the possibility of me membership in the church, right? It's kind of like a decent-sized church plant. Um, and everything's dandy until that one bad sermon, right? Um, it, it left them really scratching their heads. Actually, that's an understatement. 
uh, it, it really offended them. That, that language, um, Jesus asks, does this offend you? Are you offended at this? That the word behind offense there is the word scandal. Does this scandalize you? It scandalized them, right? His sermon, his teaching on the bread of life, that he's the bread of life, that, that whole thing scandalized them. And so they say that the group of his disciples now, not just a random public crowd, but people in the little church plant, this is a hard saying. Literally, it's, uh, this is a hard word, logos. Uh, this is a hard word. Who can listen to it? Um, and John likes word plays. John, the gospel writer, as he's recording things like this, he likes the word plays. So, um, and he opens his gospel introducing Jesus as the word. Jesus is the logos. And so I think it's probably deliberately a little bit vague whether his followers are grumbling about Jesus' sermon or whether they're grumbling about Jesus himself, especially since his sermon was so much about himself, right? Um, so he says, if you want eternal life, if you want eternal life, you come to me, you believe, you eat my flesh, you drink my blood. You can't do that unless the Father draws you. But if you do come, you'll have eternal life because I'm the bread of life. And if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you'll have eternal life. And so the larger group of disciples are right. This is really strong stuff, whether it's talking about his sermon or Jesus himself as the word of God. This is really, really strong stuff. Who can understand him? Who can understand what he's saying? Who can understand Jesus? Who can receive him? Who can stomach this? That's what they're saying, and they're getting it right. As soon as people began to understand Jesus, as soon as you really begin to understand Jesus, we become offended, scandalized for some reason or another. All of us. His mercy, let's just take his mercy. It's an implicit accusation, isn't it? His, uh, his glorification, the glorification of Christ, his ascension into heaven, his glorification is a reminder that we've all been dead wrong about glory. His, his love, his love, these are all good things about Jesus, right? His love is a call to give up on ourselves. It's a call to die to ourselves. That's a scandal. That's offensive. That's hard to stomach. That's a strong word. His gift, his gift is life that sets us at odds with the whole world. That's hard to hear. Who can listen to that? His way to resurrection glory leads through great suffering. When he says, come to me, believe, eat my flesh, drink my blood, consume me, he's, he's calling us to participate in the most questionable spirituality, in the most dubious way imaginable. Think about it. Um, Robert Capon has a book, The Mystery of Christ, that I read recently. He says, did it ever strike you that the whole business of remembering Jesus' death and receiving his body and blood is a very peculiar way of spending a weekend morning. Here are a bunch of people, more or less dressed to the nines, 
deliberately celebrating the worst thing the human race, which includes them, has ever done, the murder of God incarnate. There's your religion. It's questionable spirituality. It's dubious. This is strong, strong stuff, and it bothers people. And if, if it doesn't bother you, if you don't understand that, then somehow you're anesthetized to it. It's, there's a disconnect. It's normal to shudder. It's normal to be revolted. It's normal to insulate ourselves against these strong reactions to Jesus by not allowing ourselves really to understand what he's talking about. Sort of a deliberate, willful ignorance of what Jesus is talking about so that, so that we don't have to have the creepy, crawly reaction to Jesus. But that's normal. It's normal to have these things. Jesus knows we respond in these ways to him and to his words. It says a couple times in our passage, he knew what was going on inside of their hearts. He knew their grumbling inside their hearts. We read Psalm 139 earlier. He knows everything. He knows us inside and out before we were born. He's all over us. He knows what's going on inside of us. He knows we respond in these ways. And he explains. He's teaching. He's trying to get us up to speed on how things really are. He explains that left to ourselves, in our flesh, in our self-centered nature, we will always reject him. Always. We will never find life. We will never come to him for eternal life with God. That is how you are in and of yourself. You'll always reject him. Verse 63, he says, it's the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. In and of yourself, you're in big trouble. But the spirit gives life. It's the spirit who gives life. The spirit needs to crack you open with God's love by God's grace. This is all a gift of God's grace, this sometimes very painful cracking open that the Spirit does. If he doesn't, you won't come to Jesus for a relationship with God. You will not believe in Christ unless the Father draws you. You won't. And it's, it's good for you to know that. Even though... In our flesh, it sets us to gnashing our teeth to think about things like that, to, ha to hear Jesus say that. It drives us crazy. But he wouldn't say it unless it was for our good to hear it. He wouldn't say it. It's a strong word, but he wouldn't speak it if it weren't good for you. His words, he says, are spirit and life. This stuff that you're having a bad reaction to, he says, that's spirit and life. It's the Holy Spirit of God. It's the Father getting into your heart to crack you open so that you'll listen, so that you'll come to me, Jesus says. In his words, in his words, you come face to face with the reality of God, the, the completely self-giving God. That's who you see in Jesus, the completely self-giving God, the rejected God, who is nevertheless with us and for us. He's rejected by us, but he's coming after us. He is with us and he is for us. us. That's what we see in Christ. And so also when we see um, God in the face of Christ, we come face to face with the reality of ourselves. We're the ones who do that rejecting part. That's our part in the equation. 
And that's the painful part, coming face to face with the reality of ourselves. That's why it's hard to listen to what Jesus has to say. I don't want to know that stuff about myself. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, don't you also want to go away? And so Simon Peter answers on their behalf, basically, well, we've talked about it. But honestly, where else would we go? (laughs) Pretty enthusiastic support there. Thanks, friend. (laughs) But this is where we can really be helped in our struggle. I mean, this is... We need the assurance of our salvation. And this is written for that reason. Jesus isn't concerned about the rapidly dwindling church plant. I'd be concerned. He's not concerned. He isn't fretting about the size of his following. He isn't flirting with the idea of maybe trying again elsewhere with another group of people. Maybe they'll receive me over there. He knows what's inside people, and these are very typical people. These people, his disciples, they're very typical people, even typical of us as believers in the church, member of this church, been member of a church for 20, 40 years, whatever. These people are typical of us. We're like this. There's no other kind of person for Jesus to hang with. Every disciple has big problems understanding Jesus. Every disciple resists his teachings to some degree. Every disciple really is on the knife's edge of faith, wondering whether I really belong here, whether it it wouldn't be more comfortable elsewhere, toying with the idea of walking away from it at all. Every disciple has those thoughts. Every disciple has serious doubts, even, even to the degree of questioning whether they might not do what Judas was about to do. Right? Judas is brought up in this passage. Would I do what he did? That's a normal question to ask. Every disciple's faith is a pretty slender thread, and sometimes the best we can do is admit we're just not quite sure where else we would go, really. I've thought about it, but I'm not sure where else I'd go. Sometimes that's the best we've got. Every disciple's like that. If you're looking for assurance by looking at what's going on inside the hearts and minds of the disciples, uh, you're looking in the wrong place, and you're going to be discouraged. If you're going to look at a disciple, at these guys, or at ourselves, and ask the question, am I really saved? Do I have a relationship with God? Let me check. You're going to be discouraged. You need to be looking at the fact that Jesus stays. That's what happens in this passage. Jesus stays. Everybody's scratching their heads. People are getting angry. Some are leaving. Some are staying for pretty sorry reasons. Some are trying to articulate a confession of faith, which turns out to be a pretty fickle faith when the chips are down a little bit later. (laughs) Right? But Jesus isn't the one walking away. He never walks away. Let me say that again and make sure you get it. Jesus never walks away. He's not the type of person to walk away from relationships. That would be us. All of us. 
But Jesus doesn't walk away. If anyone's going to walk away, it'll be us, not him. There are two types of people in the world. And again, this kind of paradigm, you know, you bring this up in every sermon. There's two types of people in the world, right? Think about it in this way. People heading in two, two trajectories, toward and away, right? relationally. Toward God, toward each other, or away from God and away from each other. That's the two types of people, the two trajectories in the world. On the one hand, there are people who don't like their families, wish they hadn't been born into that family with those parents and siblings, or who wish they could escape their spouse, get a divorce, wish, wish they could escape their, the burden of their children, not have to think about them anymore, taking care of them. People who don't work well with others, People who avoid their neighbors, close the garage door on them. People who close themselves off to the poor. People who undermine relationship with others, between other people by gossiping. People who harbor bitterness and resentment and hatred and malice, who might even stay in the room with somebody but just shut down relationally. People who ultimately wish they were alone in the universe, whose trajectory takes them away from God and everyone else. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, there's Jesus. And he's the only one in that category. He's the only one in that category. He's the only one who would never abandon or betray us, even though we'd all do just that to him and everyone else. Jesus, he says he chose people just like us. That's what he says in this passage. If the choice were up to us, we'd never do it. He points that out. We'd never choose him. But he chose people just like us, including Judas, it says. We might not know exactly what category to put Judas in, how to handle Judas, his story, his life, his betrayal. We might not know what kind of category to put him in, but Jesus, Jesus didn't walk away from him either. He didn't walk away from Judas, even when Judas came to betray him with a kiss. He didn't run and hide. He is the Prince of Peace. He's, he's the one who seeks reconciliation, the one who moves toward. He's the Prince of Peace coming into a world full of hostility. He speaks with people who don't want to hear him. He sits with people who get up and walk away from him, who sell him out. He gives his body and his blood to people who would chew him up and spit him out. He gave himself up to be utterly toward people who are always on this trajectory away from him. And the reality of who Jesus is, the reality of who he is, and who he reveals God to be, is infinitely more important than your response to him. That isn't to make your response of faith unimportant. But the reality of who he is is much more important than your response to him. You shouldn't look to your own faith as the thing that gives you assurance in your relationship with God, as if sort of a strong enough faith is really what cinches the deal with God. 
Again, Robert Capon says, faith is not a gimmick we can use to ace somebody who's basically against us into being favorable to us. It's trust in a relationship with someone who's already accepted us. Already accepted us. So the question is, do I have eternal life? It really is a question. Do I have a relationship with God? And how can I know? Well, Jesus is God with you and God for you. And he has the, the, the words of eternal life and he isn't walking away. So where are you going? He isn't walking away. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful that you have revealed who you are and what you're like by sending your son Jesus. You sent him, even though the whole world would rise up against him and overthrow you and him and seek his death and walk away from you. Uh, You came into the world because you love us. That's the first word. Your initiation, your grace is the first word that stands over us. It's the last word that stands over us. You are the God who is with us, Emmanuel. We pray that that truth would become more important to us than uh, the question of the strength of our faith, uh, the question of uh, whether, whether I belong here because of indicators that I can point to in my own heart or mind or life. Um, I don't belong here, and I don't want to be here, but you want to be with me. And so you've come and you've invaded this world, and you've invaded my life and our lives with your spirit, with the presence of your Son, because you're a God who is relentless in your pursuit of us. Where can we go to get away from you? Anywhere we go, you're there. Where else would we go? Uh, We're thankful that you are who you say you are and that we can know that we have a relationship with you because of who you are. We pray that this would become increasingly meaningful to us and we'd be able to articulate this, this good news to our friends and loved ones. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.